Well, it is great to see you, Providence family. Uh, thank you for, uh, well, for being here. I know it's cold and it's wet. There's a lot of people at home. And for those of you at home, welcome. We're so glad that you've joined us as well. Uh, also, for all of our guests, welcome. Uh, I pray this time is truly encouraging to you. And uh, I'm uh, very, very excited about the impact of uh, a sermon like this because so many people in the room, they carry guilt. But before we get there, I just want to commend you. Your response last week to what you heard uh, in God's word uh, was uh, was really encouraging to uh, certainly to me, but to us as a team. Over 300 from our church family said, I think I would like to learn more about these trips. And so there's 20 trips this year going all over the world to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. And just so grateful that so many people said, I'm willing to go. Um, I'm so thankful also that uh, that for uh, many of you, you said, you know, I'm not in a life group. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, not in a small group that can know me and who can love me and who can pray for me and me, those things to them. And so I'm going to I'm going to venture out. And so I'm so grateful for your courage to do that. And I pray that uh, that uh, our team, that we can help you in that process. And then 2000 Bible reading journals were picked up, which is uh, which is really uh, incredible. And my prayer now in uh, as I've seen just your faithfulness to respond to what you heard in God's word is that he would give us the courage to put feet on all of those intentions. And so, uh, and so we can finish uh, on each of those things. In that journal, uh, the very first page of every month, there's one or two verses for us as a church family to memorize as, as a family of faith. Okay. So the first four months, what they really do is is it's a verse that is just uh, tied to the idea of how do we plant our lives within the church? And then the second set of four verses is how do we plant the gospel in our city? And then the third set of four verses uh, is um, how do we plant churches in the world? And when we memorize scripture, there's a lot of us that think, well, I'm old and so I can't memorize anymore. But we, we memorize what we care about. We all know that. We can all remember things that... That, uh, that we know and that we love. And God's word, what it does is it provides a hook on the wall so that when you go through life and you have to make a decision, you have something to hang things on. And God's word is that for us. And so what I want us to do, okay? So for January, it's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. You can write these down on a little card. You can, uh, if you read this once a day uh, for the rest of the month, there's a really good chance you're gonna have this. And so let's practice right now, okay? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what we love to do as a church family, when we draw together, as it says, is to encourage one another by praying. And by opening up God's word, that's what we're going to do now. So if you would, would you bow with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness in our life that leads us to repentance. We thank you for what we're going to see here this morning in your word, what, what you give to us, Jesus, when you're on the earth, that you invite us to pray, that, to confess our sin to you. And your word tells us that you forgive us, that you take the debt that is insurmountable and you overcome it because of your grace. We're amazed and we're thankful. And I pray for those in the room right now who simply do not think that your grace can overcome the size of their guilt and their sin. 
I thank you, God, that your word says that where our sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Would you help us to see that our sin cannot outpace your grace? Would you give people hope? Would you give all of us hope as we leave this room, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we don't have to carry them any longer? We thank you for your kindness to our life. Would you speak through weakness now to all of us? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to Matthew chapter six. Uh, Matthew six is um, there's there's uh, just a few verses we're going to read and we're going to really focus on just one of them. But in chapter six, what we find is the Lord's prayer where Jesus is teaching people how to pray to God. And one of those is the area of confession. Why this is so important is because every single one of us, this is true of us. It says that the Bible says of us is that God has sown his law within our hearts so deep that when we sin against God and against that law, that we cut our heart. It injures us. It, we, we feel it. Now, the Bible calls that cut guilt. And all of us know what that feels like when we do something. In fact, if you just think right now, like the worst thing that you regret in life, maybe for some of you, you don't have to think very long. Perhaps you did something even this calendar year. Yeah, it's only been we've only been going here for about 10 days or so. And you think, man, I uh, I uh, I cannot believe that I did that. And guilt just rises so high within your heart right now. And this is why. God Almighty, that he has etched, he has literally sown his law of beauty, of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness within our heart. That when we sin against that law, we actually cut our heart. And that guilt is something that all of us face. And it's interesting is that we're sort of a four trick pony when it comes to guilt. We all do the same thing in order to overcome it. And sadly, um, we, we, um, each one of these is a dead end. So let's walk through each one of them. Okay? The first thing that we all try to do is we try to outrun it. Is we try running from our guilt. Every single one of us do this. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. What that means is this. Is there is something inherent to guilt. Is that when we experience it, we run from life. Even though no one else may be chasing us. Or maybe even know what we've done. We feel like we're being chased. Every question, we wonder the source of that question. Do they know what I did? So we run from people. We run from relationships. So we run from responsibilities. We run from situations that remind us of of those situations of what we did. And so we try to run from it. But here's the problem. This is why it's a dead end. You cannot outrun what you carry. Guilt resides within the heart. So wherever you take your heart, you're taking your guilt there also. And so outrunning your guilt is simply never going to work. Well, the second thing we all try to do is we try to numb our guilt. We try numbing it. And we try numbing it with, with food and with drink and with drug and with medication, with shopping, with working, with sports. And so what we try to do is fill up what we feel like as a whole with something else to distract our attention, to numb our heart to the realities. But here's the problem with this, is that you cannot deal with one storm by creating another one. And this is the folly of humanity, right? Is we create storms and they complain that it's raining. If you try to fill up your guilt by eating too much, then you're going to have guilt that you ate too much. Now you have two storms instead of one. The third thing we all try to do with our guilt is we try cleansing our guilt. 
And we do this through good works. We think if I could just do a little bit more, if I can be a little bit more kind, or if I can not do that again. And, and we start thinking about how do we, how do we add enough, enough clean water to our heart to, to cleanse it. But here's the problem. It's very similar to the ocean, is that we cannot remove the salt in the ocean by adding eight-ounce glasses of fresh water. There's a saltiness in the ocean and there's a guilt within the heart that no amount of our own human righteousness, our own goodness, our own effort can remove. And this is why cleansing or trying to cleanse yourself from guilt is a dead end. And the other thing that we try to do, the last trick that we have is we try to refine our guilt. We try redefining our guilt. What I mean by that is we declare that we don't have any. We declare we have no regrets. But if you ever thought about the fact that the only people that say, I have no regrets, that's a counterbalance to the fact that they feel regret within their own heart. We get tattoos, no regrets. That's someone that has regrets, okay? I'm just telling you right now, they have regrets. And we try to redefine God's law. We say, you know what? That's not the truth. This is the truth. And so we try to create a new reality, redefine reality. But here's the thing. We cannot erase the law that is sown upon our heart by writing a new one. It's there. It's in all of us. And we all have moments in our life that we want to erase. And here's the good news. God has made a way, but there's only one. It is one way and it's called forgiveness. And there's only one way to access that forgiveness. And he calls it confession of sin. It's because of what Jesus has done for us that he gives us the ability to confess our sin to God and receive his forgiveness after we have established a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, when you get sick, you go to the doctor. And when you leave the doctor, you leave with a piece of paper. It looks like this. It's a prescription. Now, that piece of paper is not medicine. But it gives you hope. You know why? It's because it connects you to medicine. It's the access point. And that's what prayer is. You see, Jesus told us to confess our sin in prayer to God because prayer connects us to a God who has the power to forgive, the power to heal. And this is what he says to us. He says in Matthew 6, verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And here it is. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so when we talk about prayer, what Jesus does first is he places it on the foundation of a relationship that we're talking to someone that he says is our father in heaven. Our father indicates he has full compassion, overwhelming compassion for our life. The fact that he resides in heaven, his throne is in heaven. What that means is that he has the capability to do what we need. He's full of compassion, full of capacity. He's capable to do And the very next thing that he does, he says, now let's address your heart. See, the Lord's prayer is not a, this is the sequence and you have to go in this order. No, what he's doing here is he's giving us phrases that cause us that once we say them, we have to think about our own life. And he begins with adoration. That's what we looked at last week. And this is really, really important. 
Adoration, he begins, hallowed be your name. The word hallow means that when we hallow something, what we're doing is we're treating it as something that is our central concern. It's our, it's our chief aim. It's our recurring daydream. It's what we think about. It's what we want more than anything else. And why that's so important is this. If we do adoration right, confession and petition become a reflex. You see, adoration is how we view God. Confession is how we view ourselves, and petition is how we view our world. And if you see God as big and bright and consequential, if you see Jesus and his name and everything that he is for you, if you see that in Jesus, you have a faithful one, you have a true one, you have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the way, the truth, the life, your high priest, you have an everlasting father and a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace. If you know all those things are true of you and that all those things are directed for your good, then what that's like is it's like standing at the base of Mount Everest. And that no matter what you're doing at the base of Mount Everest, you can always see it in view. God wants to be in view in all of your relationships, all of your responsibilities, all of your decisions. He wants to be the big, bright reality. And here's the deal. When he is... Confession is simply a reflex. And this is why. Next week, we'll look at how, how we ask God for things. But for this week, when adoration is right within our life, meaning we're adoring the right thing, confession becomes the reflex because when you're seeing God, you're seeing a holy one. And when the holy one is the mirror and we look back upon ourselves, we think, wait a minute, I'm not holy. It creates a pattern of daily confession when we fall short of his glory. And so what does he do here? He shows us three things that Jesus desires for each and every one of us. The first is this, is that Jesus desires that we see our need for forgiveness. You have a need to be forgiven. You may not know it. Actually, you do. You may try to redefine it, but every single one of us knows that there is something missing in our life and there's a residual guilt that's left in its place. Jesus says that we have debts. That's why he says we should pray, forgive us our debts. Our debts is something you should personalize. My debt. That's me. He's talking to me there. My debt. Brian's debt. You see, Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. When you see the glory of God and you hallow that, you adore that, what happens is we recognize that we've fallen short of that. Now, that may be one of the greatest understatements in the whole Bible. We have fallen short of the glory of God. Is that necessary? I mean, is that really necessary to be there? Well, let me ask you, is this sign necessary on earth? Does it really, like, does someone really need this, right? This trail is unsafe. If you can't see the trail, it's unsafe. It's, it's flooded with three feet of water. Don't walk on it. But here's the deal. Someone on this earth needs this sign, which is why we make it, okay? That's why the DOT put it up and say, you know what? We need to make signs like this. We need to cast it into metal so that it won't go away because people need to learn this truth. And God says, look, you may not think that this is a big deal for you, that it's an obvious truth, but let me tell you something. You have fallen short of the glory of God. Ezra chapter 9 verse 6 He looks to God and he says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. You see, if you get to the place or you meet someone who says, I don't have any guilt. What they've made God is an idea, not a person. 
this is one thing you need to understand about God. Were all of us to go away, he would still be who he is. Were all of us to not believe in him, he would not change a single iota. He is who he is because he is a person. He relates to people. He has emotions. He has thoughts. He has desires. He has actions. He has a mission. There is someone there to offend. And when we come to the place where we say, I can't offend God, what we're thinking is that he's an idea. He's a system of thought. He's the collection. He's a summation of our belief about him. But he's not. He's not. He is who he is. He's revealed who he is and part of who he reveals is he says that I am perfect in every way and I've written my law upon your heart and you've all sinned against me. And when you look at the Bible and you want to see the most vulnerable revelations within the scripture of God that that frankly are the ones that make me tremble the most, not in fear, but in sorrow. It's when he laments our sin. Think of a verse like Jeremiah chapter two, verse five. It's not on, I don't have it on screen. This is what he says. God looks at his people and he says, look at me. What fault do you have in me? What part of me is unbecoming? Is unattractive? Is inconsequential? Is boring? That you would walk away from me. Absolutely stunning how vulnerable he presents himself when he considers the fact that his people, the the crowning achievement of his creation, were created to have a relationship with him. We said, nah. It's stunningly painful to him within scripture when he comes to us and he says, you've not honored my holiness You've not admired my greatness and you've not obeyed my words and you've not heeded or even expressed appreciation in my, pre- in my protective restrictions over you. You've not loved my people that are created in your image or in my image. You've, you've not treasured my grace. You've not trusted my faithfulness. You've not believed my promises or respected my justice, pursued my pleasure. You see, though our debt before him is miles deeper than our ability to see that debt, our debt is real. And it impairs every part of our life. Have you ever noticed at a funeral, we just feel obligated to state the obvious? Oh, we always start, oh, he was kind, she was this, this, and so all the lovely things. And yet we don't feel that we told the whole story until we tell the whole story. Which is why there's an obligation to say, you know what, but they battled with this or they struggled with this or he talked too much or man, they just wouldn't let it go. But, but we normally say it with a smile on our face like, you know, yeah, very impulsive. And you know, when, when that person was alive was being impulsive, we weren't smiling so much, though, were we? You see, one day we're going to find that Every single part of our life, our motives, our intentions, our relationships, our personality, everything has been marred and distorted by sin. There's a part of every one of us that will be unrecognizable in heaven because we will never treat people. We will never see ourselves. We won't have motives that we have here. We'll be so different in heaven. Every single part of us will be redeemed in heaven for those who have trusted Jesus Christ. This is what he says. He goes, this all has to begin with this. Do you see that I am 
holy God and you've fallen short of my glory. You have a spiritual debt that's absolutely real. It's absolutely significant. That it absolutely breaks my heart and it changes your whole life. Friends, he's not an idea. The second thing that Jesus wants us to see that he desires is that we confess our sin and be forgiven. And this is where everything turns into really good news. He could have just said, yeah, you have debts. Let's move on. That's not what he said. He gives us, he shows us that confession is possible and that forgiveness is available. When he says, pray like this, and then he says, forgive us our debts, Jesus wouldn't say this if forgiveness wasn't available. And you know, forgiveness means a really special thing. Most of us, we, we use the word forgiveness. I mean, we don't really know exactly what it means. What it exactly means is sent away. It also mean release. That's what it means to forgive someone, to send something away or to release. And sometimes a picture is more than a thousand words. And that's what the Old Testament does. It serves us. It gives us all kinds of pictures that points to a reality that is coming in Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, there was a day that God assigned for his people. It was called the Day of Atonement. When the people, when the nation would get right with God. They would all gather at the temple. They'd all come to one central place, one central day. And there the high priest would take two goats, unblemished goats. The first goat, he'd place his hands on his head in order to put the sins of the people symbolically upon the goat and kill the goat and place the goat up on the altar where it would burn as a sacrifice for sin. And then he would come and he would take a second goat and he would place his hands symbolically on the head in order to symbolize that the sins of the people, not only have they been died for by this animal, but you're going to place it on this animal. And then with the second goat, what they would do with this goat is they would take it so far out into the wilderness that it couldn't find its way back. It would be sent away, released. And this is what forgiveness is to you and to me. Now, you may say, wait a minute, we don't do goats around here. It's true. We don't do goats. You didn't bring a goat today, and I'm glad you didn't. We wouldn't have a pen for them around here. Why should we care about the goats in the Old Testament? This is why. Because these animals, like this picture, were a temporary fix, sort of like putting a tarp on a leaky roof. They covered the house until Christ came to fix the roof. It was a temporary fix. But then Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. No sin whatsoever. He never fell short of the glory of God. Ever. And yet he took our sin upon himself. Not symbolically. In reality. And he went to a cross. And there he died just like the first goat. But not only did he do that, but he took our sins so far away from us that it could never find its way back to us. This is what Psalm 103 verse 12 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And how is this forgiveness applied to us? How do we receive it? If all this is true, if Jesus actually did this and this is available, then how do you get some? How do you come in contact with that grace so that you can stop running and numbing and cleansing and redefining? You can actually experience freedom from your guilt. How? Confession. 
Forgive us our debts, God. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, forgiveness is sort of a process, and I want to show you the process through a man named David. David was a king in the Old Testament. He was a great king. It says of him that he was a king after God's own heart. What that means is this, is that David hallowed God. For many of the days of his life and hours of his life, he was David's central concern. He was his recurring daydream. He was his aim in life. To please God was everything to him. And then one day he, from his castle, he looked down and he saw a woman bathing and got distracted. It's typically what happens when a man sees a naked woman is he gets distracted. He's not sinned, but he's distracted. And suddenly he allowed his heart, though, to change what he adored. And suddenly that woman became his adoration. What was hallowed? What was his central concern? What was his recurring daydream? And this is the very first step towards sin. And then recovery is distorted adoration. When we take God in all of his glory and we say, you're not what I adore right now. What I adore right now is this. Whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's lust, whether it's whatever it is. Whatever it is that that leads us. We say, I need that. And that becomes our central concern, our chief ambition. That's what I need. And I think about that and I want that. It always begins with distorted adoration. Well, her husband happens to be one of his own bodyguards. A noble man who was out with his army fighting his battles. David took his adoration, called her up, commits adultery, gets her pregnant, tries a cover up. It fails. And so he murders Uriah, her husband. And this is what we call sin. Okay, sin. And that's the second step. It begins with a distorted adoration. And when we act on it, listen, you don't have to act on it. You can repent of a distorted adoration to say, I do not want to act on that. But when we do act on it, what happens is the Bible calls that sin. When we step across, when we miss the mark. Sin. And what's amazing is the Bible tells us that David would not confess his sin. The Bible actually does something that's pretty unique, and that is that it hits fast forward button from that sin to nine months later when Nathan came to confront him of his sin. Now, this is amazing. This is the only nine-month gap in the life of David that we have in the whole Bible. We see him not, we don't see him worshiping. We don't see him singing. We don't see him writing any psalms during this time. We see him irritable. We see him angry. And you know why? Because third thing is conviction. And this is where, where you see it. Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4. David wouldn't confess his sin, so the Bible says that God tore up his heart. Psalm 32 says this, when I kept silent, that's me, when I wouldn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This is conviction. It's conviction. What does that mean? 
means it, when I go to bed, I think about my guilt and I can't sleep. And you, and I, but I'm not going to confess because I, I, it'd be too embarrassing or, 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 or I think it's right. Or I don't know what it is. I'm trying to redefine it. I'm trying to numb myself. And so now he's tired. And he's irritable. He's ticked off for nine months. His relationships are fragmented. They're, they're, it, like, things are just flustered. His whole life is messed up. And nothing within the Bible. We see nothing of nine months. God just said, you know, that's not worth recording. Fast forward. Some of us, that's where we're at right now. You have something so big and so relevant in terms of guilt in your life, but you say, I am not going to confess it. I'm holding on to it. I'm redefining reality. This is right, and I won't confess it as sin. What God does because he loves us is his hand becomes very heavy upon us. Augustine said, God's greatest anger is when he no longer gets angry. So we should thank the Lord that his hand is heavy when we won't confess. Well, finally, he does. This is the fourth, his confession. And we see his confession in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, this is what David says. He comes to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, would you blot out my transgression? Transgression is to cross over. God draws a line and we say, I don't care about your line. I'm crossing over. It's willful rebellion. He says, God, I did that. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word means crookedness. It means I start the day going well and suddenly I'm I'm like this. By three o'clock, I'm all the way over here somewhere. God, would you wash me? Would you you cleanse me of that iniquity in my own heart? And then he goes on, he says, and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is to miss the mark. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words. See what he's saying? He says, I, I have a change of heart, mind, and will. He says, God, I grieve what I did, but even more so, I grieve that I wanted to. I knew what you said. That's why he says at the very end that you may be justified when I'm confessing my sin. What we're saying is, God, you were right. You were right. What I did was wrong. I thought it was right. I wanted to be right, but it wasn't right. Your standard is not a standard. It's the standard. So he says, God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? And that's the fifth and last, and it's forgiveness. He actually gives it. Psalm 32, verse five, David says it like this. He goes, then I acknowledged my sin to you and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Listen to me, those of you right now who just won't confess your sin. He will send it all away. You don't have to carry it another day. Another day. You just have to look to him and say, God, would you forgive me? I was wrong. He will forgive you. And so Jesus desires we see our need and then we confess our sin and be forgiven. And the third thing, 
As he reminds us that our relationship with God is so interconnected with our relationships with each other that you cannot disrupt one without disrupting the other. And that is that Jesus desires that we forgive as we have been forgiven. I want you to notice how Jesus doubles down. Verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. He teaches one more sentence and he says, yeah, that's how to pray. And then he says, you know what? I've got something on my mind, something I said earlier. Let me come back to that. And he doubles down and he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. Jesus is not saying here that we earn forgiveness by forgiving. He's saying that we know God's forgiveness if we forgive. And I know that some of you have been hurt so deeply, maybe in ways that nobody else in the room has been hurt. And you think this is simply an impossibility. Some of you, the idea of forgiving someone, their trespass against you, it's really threatening to you primarily. Because if you know that you send that away, then you have nothing left to clutch that justifies your anger, that justifies your, your new personality, that justifies your new identity. If you let that go, I have nothing left to stand on is what many people believe. You know what, yo? You don't have to live your whole life as a bitter person. You don't have to. You can let all that go and you can forgive. What you'll find is that you'll be the happier one. You will be the happier one. See, I realize some of you have been hurt in such terrible, terrible ways. But what Jesus is saying here is that no one has ever been wronged as we have wronged God. And so what he does in Matthew 18 is he tells us a little parable about this in order to show us. And it starts with Peter. A lot of things started with Peter. Peter comes up and he says, hey, Jesus, um, how often do I have to forgive somebody that does the same thing to me? Now, Jewish law said you got to do it three times. Three strikes, you're out. He goes, I'll tell you what, what, is it like seven times? And so Peter, he's probably thought he was like really spiritual. I'm going to double the law and one, add one for good measure. Aren't you pleased with me, Lord? And the Lord comes back and he goes, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 times. Now, why did he say this? It wasn't so that when we get, okay, listen, I, man, I've forgiven him 401 times. You're getting close. Like we're, 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 it's starting to stack up and we're just want you to know that you're in the yellow light right now. No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is actually referring to something that took place all the way back in Genesis chapter four. You remember that Adam and Eve had some kids and the first son, Cain, killed his brother, Abel. Well, later on, Cain has a kid and His name is Lamech. Lamech kills a man. And Lamech basically says, listen, if anyone comes at me, I'm coming at you. And this is what he says. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. Same construction, same language of what Jesus used. Now, what's happening here? Jesus is saying, look, I know that revenge is the atmosphere that you breathe as sinful people. But now that I have come, let grace be the atmosphere. Instead of making revenge your natural go-to, because of my grace in your life, now my grace extended through your life can become the atmosphere of your life. And then he tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me just translate that. That's 200,000 years of wages. The talent was 20 years wage. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, by the way, this is not a true story. It's a parable to tell us something about us. We have a debt that would require or more than 200,000 years. And yet we come to him and say, just give me a little bit of time and I'll pay it all off. That's what good works are like to God. Because you're not going to live long enough. Plus you're going to keep sinning. And so he goes on. This is amazing. He says, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him all his debt. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred days wage. And he seized him, choked him, said, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded. He said the same thing. Have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. End of parable. Now he looks up at the crowd and he says, and this is your takeaway. This is for you. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what do we do? What do we do with everything you just heard? Let me boil it down to just a few things. The first thing is you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you to trust Christ and be saved. You know, the very last thing, or at least one of the last requests that David had of God in Psalm 51, when he's pleading and confessing his sin, he goes, God, would you just please not cast me away from your presence? Just just don't send me away because then life would not be worth living. And you know, the good news is God didn't. And you know why he didn't? Because the very thing David asked him not to do, God did to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus took all of our sin upon his shoulders and was cast out of the father's presence on the cross. But then he rose from the dead. And he says, if you'll place your faith and belief and trust in me, I will not only forgive you of your sin, I will deposit my righteousness into your account. When you trust Christ, you do not have a zero balance where your sin has simply been removed. You have a billion dollar surplus because Jesus Christ's righteousness has been deposited into your account. So don't turn over a new leaf. Do not reform. Do not run. Don't numb. Believe in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sin. Second is this is let's trust Christ and forgive one another. How in the world could we possibly be unwilling to forgive a hundred dollar debt when we've been forgiven a billion dollar debt? This is the basis of Colossians 3.13 when he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And you know, just as well as I do, that the forgiveness is not natural. Revenge, nursing wounds and bitterness is natural. Forgiveness is a miracle. But it's a miracle that takes place when we see how God's wrath was overcome towards us because then we can then transfer that and see how our, our wrath can be overcome towards others. 
One thing I've come to learn is though God's forgiveness is perfect, ours is not. So it requires a process. The deeper the wound, the more the wound sits underneath the surface, sort of like an iceberg. And so you may be faithful and say, you know what? I'm going to forgive that person. God, I forgive them of what they've done. And it's like cutting off the top of the iceberg. And you think, okay, it's gone. And a month later, you're driving down the road and you think about the offense. And all of a sudden, you're angry again. You're like, wait a minute. I thought that I forgave that person. What happened is more of the iceberg. It just kind of came up to the top. And so every time it comes up, you forgive again. And you forgive again. And you forgive again. And soon, you will be free. I want you to know that forgiveness may not end in the restoration and trust of that relationship. In particular, if there's no repentance. God has never called us to trust a man. He's called us to forgive a man. But by his grace, we can forgive. And the last thing is this, is let's trust Christ and confess our sins daily. Do you know why we need to confess daily? It's because we sin daily. Confession is like washing our face just hours after taking a shower. Sin separates and confession renews. So before we do anything else, what I want to encourage you to do is to take just a moment. Ask God to search your heart and confess any sin that he reveals to him this morning. So let's do that. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to reveal and unveil sin that's deeper than our heart. God, would you help us to see and adore you? I pray that you would help us to adore you in such a way that it would bring confession into his proper focus in our own life. I pray that you would forgive us of our sin. I pray that you would forgive me of my sin. I pray for those in this room who have never trusted Christ in their life, that you would lead them right now, Lord, to believe in you, to confess you as Lord. Would you forgive them of their sin? Would you save them this morning, right now? We thank you for your kindness. And we believe that when sinners such as us are, are pardoned, that we become happy singers. People who love to sing of your grace and your kindness. And so now as we sing to you, I pray. I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to us. Help us to celebrate now what's been written. That we've been forgiven. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.